Hi, ActiveHistory.ca is pleased to present a recording of Historical Research on Canada and Beyond, a discussion with James Daschuk and Mark Phillips. The event was held Saturday, November 1st, 2014 at City Hall in Ottawa and was hosted by the Canadian Historical Association. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. Mesdames et messieurs, collègues et amis, historiens, professeurs et amateurs, jeunes et moins jeunes, férus d'histoire locale ou de terres éloignées, bienvenue au nom de la Société historique du Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends, historians and amateurs and professionals, scholars of local and foreign places, young and less young, welcome in the name of the Canadian Historical Association. I'm Dominique Marshall, and I'm the president of the CHA for two years, uh, which is an association which has represented historians of all trades for almost 90 years now. It's a pleasure to welcome you in the main hall of this city, which is uh, slowly recovering from the difficult events of last week, to showcase the best work that our profession has to offer. As they put together their accounts, historians have at least three main duties. First, to the people, times, and societies they research. Today, you'll see how Jim Dashuk, who teaches at the University of Regina, brought to life memories which were until then broken. Second, they owe to their public of their own time to give them the memory of their past to give them, as Latin American writer Eduardo Galeneo says, the desire to invent their future. This is why it's always good for authors to have conversation like this one with their readers. Finally, historians owe it to their profession to abide by high ethical standards and reflect on their methods and theories. This is in many ways the project of Mark Phillips, the historian of the Enlightenment, the art historian as well, who teaches here at Carlton University. It is no small feast to have them both with us this afternoon, and to my knowledge, it's a first. They have received, uh, on this year of 2014, the highest recognition historians working in Canada can hope for. The Johnny MacDonald and the Wallace Ferguson Prizes, respond, uh, respectively, for the best book in Canadian and in non-Canadian history. Each will speak for 20 to 30 minutes, after which we will open the conversation to the floor. And please feel free to go back and forth between uh, the abundant food and drink there and your seats. And Jim and Mark, welcome. Thanks, Dominic. Um, I lost the coin toss, so I'm going to go first. Uh, never gamble. Uh, I guess uh, I've been asked to, to talk about uh, clearing the planes, uh, the content of clearing the planes, but I'd just like to, uh, I'm in a pretty distinguished crowd here, uh, executives of the CHA, uh, I'm in a group of professors. Uh, I guess what I'd like to talk about is a little bit of a, a preamble and um, so a word I learned from my publisher. I was just talking to Carrie Abel, uh, my, my friend from the University of Manitoba from probably 20, 25 years ago. And... Uh, it's probably something, okay, something I've never really heard of in the context, and it's kind of positioning. And one of the things I guess I'd like to share with you, uh, this actually stems back with my conversation with Carrie, is one of my teachers was Jack Bumstead. Do you guys remember Jack Bumstead? Okay, so uh, 
very prolific author and one of the things he said he was very crusty but he heart of gold and he's like you little buggers one thing I want you guys to do is to make your writing accessible so your PhD thesis your master's thesis those should be a book okay and uh, they should be readable there should be an arc it should be it should be a story and uh so I guess 2002, a very long time ago, when I finally did finish uh, the dissertation version with a very long political economy, you know, in terminal dates, uh, because I attempted to write a scholarly uh, synthesis, uh, the young assistant professor who was on my committee, I could have been her first victim, like, you know, and um, she had a very hard time with that. And what she said was, I don't think this is a thesis. Because what your thesis, what a thesis to her was, and she's my age, but you know, like she's on the other side of the table, she said you should have been doing a deep dig in archival research and focusing on one single problem. Okay, and uh, I was trying to answer a big problem, like you know, maybe I took a little too much on for myself, and I will freely admit that uh, the thesis version was was very weak with regard to archival sources because I used secondary sources. So I did manage to make it through my dissertation, and I guess I kind of backfilled the primary sources over the next decade or so. Uh, But one of the things I really tried to do, and I I spoke at Trent, uh, I've been speaking all over the place actually, but the last couple days I've been speaking at Trent. I gave the W.L. Morton lecture on, I think, Thursday night and a grad seminar at the Frost Center. And one of the things I, I told the students, because these are very bright PhD students, Frost Center actually, despite uh, humanities being under-resourced, Frost Center has five SHRC-funded postdocs in that. You know, So they're a very high-quality center, and these are very good students. And what I told them was, you know what? I, and they're all kept up on theory. I don't think theory is helping us as a community. Like, uh, you know, and I said, theory is a, sh- a short form. You know, like we can use, it's a shorthand. But if you can't explain what your theory is, or you can't explain your story in the context of the theory to a non-insider, um, we're, we're sort of closing a lot of doors. And these days, I know University of Regina, the humanities faculty, is having a heck of a time. They're almost withering on the vine. And my publisher, Bruce Walsh, in his, uh, you know, those catalogs, they, you know, uh, a couple times a year, he's actually written, University of Regina Press is trying to save humanities from itself. And what they're doing is, if you have something good and readable, send it to us, and we'll we'll get your message out there. So, I don't know if that's a controversial thing to say. There may be some theory people, but um, one of the things I tried to do was to tell uh, kind of a terrible story in as accessible language as possible. So, again, um, talking about the uh, the seminar yesterday at the Frost Center, I did not use the word colonialism in you know, the 185 pages of Clearing the Plains, even though it's about colonialism because I didn't want an inflammatory word or, you know, a, a trigger word to, to set the writers off. So in one sense, you think of it, I'm uh, giving the, you know, dropping the crumbs for the pigeons to follow and they can come to their own conclusion. So, and I guess uh, on that note, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll give you guys a, I don't know, you know, 10-minute lecture on uh, on what, what the book is actually about. And uh, I was lucky enough, actually... Um, I grew up in northern Ontario. Carrie is from Tim's. We were talking about our ancestral homeland in northern Ontario. And I was a, a, a big camper. I was aspiring to be a camper and spent a lot of time canoeing. And uh, actually, the end of my time at Trent was when uh, my buddies and I walked from the Trans-Canada Highway to James Bay. It was 200. Everything was miles in the 80s. So we walked. We spent six weeks uh, on snowshoes. And the next year was everything I could do to get back to the tundra. So rather than going to Europe to self-actualize as an adult, I went north. And um, I realized, I got a job, summer job working in Manitoba, 
and kept driving by the Hudson's Bay Company archives, provincial archives in Manitoba, beautiful Art Deco building. And I was like, how can I get in there and read those documents? Well, it was grad school. And so uh, I had such a good time reading those documents that Jack Bumstead, my teacher, actually his wife, Wendy, worked at the archives, and she was kind of spying, and she's like, yeah, one of your, one of your punks is in there all the time. So uh, Jack ended up getting me a job at the medical school working for Dr. Q. Young. And uh, he was the preeminent epidemiologist of indigenous people, probably at least in North America, if not potentially on a global scale. And he basically said, consider this job um, a fellowship. Like, go see, go to the archives and see what you can find. So uh, that was when, actually, the archives were open more often. I just spent two hours in the archives. It was kind of sad. There were tumbleweed blowing through. and uh, Like, I was the only person on the second floor today. Um, but I did see that that was a gold mine, and I've been pers- sort of, uh, you know, digging those veins of gold ever since. And uh, with regard to my PhD thesis, what I, what I tried to do was, I, just from that cursory bit of, of information, I knew that First Nations people on the prairies were some, were some of actually the best fed people in the world. I, again, backfilling this, I found a physical anthropology study that said that Plains bison hunters in the 19th century were the tallest people in the world due to the you know, high-protein, low-fat diet. And I gave a talk last summer at the Swift Current Museum, and there was one of those hugely tall Dutch people, you know, those six-foot-seven people, a reporter, and he said, even taller than the Dutch? And I said, well, the article didn't say the second tallest people in the world? Yes. Okay. So, uh, but from that, in probably the 1860s and 1870s, a generation later... First Nations people on the plains were described by the physicians who came west with the, you know, with the settlers as being sick and lethargic, and basically they, they were characterized by disease. And that sort of, uh, you know, indigenous people as sick and doomed to extinction, that sort of view has stayed with us probably for 120 years. And our society, at least in Western Canada, has grown up around that to the point where we can put up, you know, we in... I don't know, mainstream society can put up with people uh, not having clean drinking water, having a five to ten year shorter life expectancy, much more highly represented in hospitals, overrepresented in prisons, you name it. Actually, here's one for you. 64% of First Nations children in Saskatchewan live under the poverty line. And Sean Atlio in 2011, just trying to get the word out about uh, Indigenous issues during the federal election campaign, one that really got me was a First Nations kid at a reserve school has a higher percent, has a higher chance of going to prison than getting his, high, his or her high school diploma. So, and you know, there's a whole bunch of issues with regard to that. So, in one sense, I wanted to find like, what's the origin of this? Like, how did we get into these such divergent uh, situations? And I work with a population health group. Uh, Sphiru has got a very long acronym. But it, what my task was with that group was. Uh, where's the origin of, of the health inequity? Because inequity is difference that can be uh, that can be dealt with. If we all, you know, live and die at roughly the same time, we're doing okay as a society. But that's not what's happening in Saskatchewan, at least. So, um, one of the things that, again, uh, you know, in, in in addressing that question, what I tried to do was I looked at the politics, I looked at the medical history, I looked at the environment. I spent, and as I was telling uh, Carrie. I've been spending, I've spent probably 25 years on this project, you know, uh, part-time or, or working on it. So I've done a lot of research, and what I found was um, things weren't perfect, you know, when uh, Canada annexed the West, you know, with the Rupert Slam uh, purchase. But 
um, the Plains Cree, one of the main groups that inherited the Plains, there's a whole uh, story to that, but Plains Cree were the majority group in the 1870s, and they were in pretty good shape. And uh, what I focused on was Treaty Number 6, okay? And that's, um, everyone knows that in, in the, on the prairies, uh, each geographical region is represented by a numbered treaty, and those numbered treaties, as a mnemonic device, what I tell my students is, each numbered treaty represents a year in the 1870s. So Treaty 1 is 71, 72, Treaty 2 is 72, and, and so forth. Treaty 6 is the one I really looked at. It's probably the most sophisticated of the numbered treaties. And uh, as I tell my students, Treaty 6 was negotiated at Fort Carlton in, uh, I think it was late August of 1876. Just a couple months before, Custer and the 7th Cavalry lost their lives at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Okay? Everyone at Fort Carlton, white and indigenous alike, knew what had happened. So the way I explain it is, uh, I think it was Walter Hildebrandt wrote an article about how the Mounties were ordered to Fort Carlton to, as a show of force, with regard, like they, you know, they weren't beating anybody up, but what they were probably doing was polishing their guns and, you know, we have some guns, we're not pointing them at anybody, we're just, we're showing up. And what I explain is, on the other side of the, on the other side of the uh, gathering, the Plains Cree are probably polishing their guns and just, you know, hanging out and showing that, that they're in a position of power as well. So when those negotiations took place, uh, I believe that they were very earnest, and they took place over three days. Some treaties, steamboat showed up, put your mark on here, you get some garden implements and $5, and we'll see you next year. But, but Treaty 6 was very different. There was three days of hard bargaining, and um, one of the chiefs, Chief Beardy, there's a, a, a reserve in Saskatchewan not too far from Prince Albert, uh, Beardy's and Okamasis Reserve, what he said was he was very concerned because they've been hunting bison that Plains Cree at least for 120 years, maybe longer. And he said, we're very concerned about the future. And if something happens to us, like with regard to the food supply, we don't want to use this terminology. We don't want to die like dogs. And so there's back and forth between Alexander Morris and him. Alexander Morris, of course, wrote Treaties of Canada. He documented his, his view of what happened. And Morris said, like, we're not going to feed you in every, like, every single day. And it's back and forth. And... Eventually, Alexander Morris um, commits himself to, if there is a famine, if there is a true crisis, you will not be allowed to die like dogs. And there was inserted one of the innovative clauses of Treaty 6 was something called the Famine and Pestilence Clause. And uh, in my slideshow, I would have the words for you, but basically, in the time of a national famine, in a crisis, the Queen or her representatives will be there, and they're taking on the responsibility. Okay, So that's what's included into Treaty 6. Uh, 18 months later, the bison disappear forever. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. American military overhunting, um, hide hunting for the Industrial Revolution. But the bison aren't there anymore. And uh, some of the very few Canadian government representatives were the Mounties. They, they established themselves in the string of uh, posts after their, their long march west. And uh, in the spring of 1878, the very few physicians that were working at the Mountie posts uh, said, like, things are totally different. In the fall, everyone was fine. Now people are hungry and people are sick. And so the Mounties truly, uh, like, and they come west as the advocates of First Nations people, shutting down the, um, the whiskey trade in southern Alberta. They, I think they acted, you know, on, uh, on, for the best interest of the First Nations people who were undergoing famine. Uh, so they scrambled, and uh, just a few hundred kilometers south of, uh, of the Mountie post, say, at Fort Walsh, the, uh, the ranching frontier in Montana was well established. So probably within a few weeks, maybe a month or two at the absolute most, weekly bull trains of food were being brought, like were being purchased. 
by, by the government and being brought to reserves or to communities. And uh, Fort Walsh is one of the main sort of humanitarian relief stations. Uh, and that sort of uh, that process went on through the summer of 1878. And of course, everyone in the room knows that in the fall of 1878, McDonald was re-elected on on the promise of the national policy and the quick construction of the railway. So what ended up happening was that this humanitarian crisis turned turned from the perspective of Ottawa. And this is not to diss the citizens, fine citizens of Ottawa who are in the room, but uh, from McDonald's perspective. Oh, and just another little reminder. McDonald was in power till he died, but he was also the Minister of Indian Affairs till 1883, so he personally oversaw issues regarding Indigenous people. He turned that humanitarian crisis essentially into an opportunity. And what he did was, he started, he had his, uh, his uh, officials, uh, over the course of, of several months and a couple of years, make this, the regulations to acquire food during that humanitarian crisis ever more difficult. And essentially, by, the, by 1879, any First Nations group that hadn't put their mark, any leader that hadn't put their mark on treaty and had gone to reserve wasn't supplied with food because uh, the, the police were ordered, well, they're not our responsibility if they're not treaty Indians, to use the old terminology. So in 1878, uh, 1879, five or six uh, Cree uh, leaders were essentially starved into... Uh, putting their mark on treaty and marching toward Battleford. Oh, and just as an aside, uh, I've been speaking to, actually, even First Nations uh, school groups down to grade six. So I spoke at Little Pine School back in um, in May. Little Pine, Chief Little Pine, was one of the, the Cree chiefs who was starved into submission. So I had to tell these 12-year-olds, well, the origin of your community was that the government wouldn't give your ancestors food until they moved to this community. That wasn't a very easy message to provide in a you know, in an accessible way. Um, but over the course of time, what ended up happening was those bull trains are coming week by week and they're bringing literally tons and tons of food. But the, uh, the regulations provided to the farm instructors and Indian agents were that only the minimum requirement of food, and I think it was, I'm just trying to remember, my PowerPoint show has it written down, three ounces of bacon and I think nine ounces of flour per person per day. Okay, so people were kept on the absolute limit. And actually, that, that three ounces of meat and nine ounces of flour, three people died, I think it was at the Okanese Reserve over the Christmas holidays of 1880, 1881. Like, it wasn't enough to sustain themselves. Uh, but what, what that policy did was, it very quickly subjugated the First Nations people. And uh, so they were forced, forced to move to their assigned reserves, and those assigned reserves were predominantly around Battleford, Saskatchewan. Battleford had been intended to be uh, the capital of Northwest Territories. Very briefly was because the original plan for the railroad was to build the Yellowhead, which would have gone from Winnipeg uh, through what would become Saskatoon, Battleford, and Edmonton. But uh, the national policy said, no, it's going to go from Edmonton essentially to the teeny tiny Mountie post of Calgary. Okay? And Regina didn't even exist at that time. So what that did was it not only subjugated the, the Plains Cree and other uh, First Nations group, it cleared the land, and I actually use the term ethnic cleansing, it cleared the land uh, in southwestern Saskatchewan for European settlement. And, uh, you know, some of you may be thinking, oh, Daschuk is a conspiracy theorist. Well, uh, in I, again, I built, or I uh, uh, wrote a, a, what I think is a scholarly synthesis, but I've been asked to go back to the original record. So I went to the footnotes of the people I quoted and found those comments in, in Hansard. So I provided those to a few people. 
And what McDonald said is, with regard to, I think it was in uh, March of 1882, because of all the trouble with First Nations people in the Cypress Hills and south of the proposed railway tracks, all of the people, all of the First Nations people in Assiniboia, south of the pro- proposed railway project, will be removed from, from that area. And they were because any First Nation group that needed assistance who was south of the proposed railway line was essentially uh, cut off rations until they moved north. So uh, these days, and again, I'm look, referring because I've given this talk a few times, I would be looking at a map which has 78 First Nations in Saskatchewan, 78 reserves, west and south of Regina. Okay, so that's actually quite a big part of, uh, you know, south of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Okay, out of 78 reserves, there are only two reserves in the present. One is Nikanit. It's a very small Cree reserve. There's actually a, a healing lodge in, 20, like in, in the present. It's like a, a healing lodge for Aboriginal women, kind of a, uh, through um, Corrections Canada. Okay? But there's only 200 people there now, and Nikanit didn't actually live to see uh, reserve status granted to his community. Uh, it was granted somewhere around the beginning of the First World War. And the other one is Wood Mountain. And Wood Mountain is a very, very small... I think there's only 100 people on, on the band roll right now. I'm not even sure if anyone lives there. It's very close to the American border. It's a Dakota reserve, so it's not even a treaty reserve. And they didn't get status until probably the late uh, 1920s, maybe even 1930. So that land in southwestern Saskatchewan was truly depopulated of its indigenous people. And I've been giving a lot of talks, and I, I spoke in Edmonton about a month ago, and there was a, a lawyer in Edmonton. He's from a community called Kindersley. It's uh, on the road from Saskatoon to Calgary, if you can imagine that 45-degree angle. Okay? Uh, this guy was from Kindersley, and he grew up on a farm, and he said, you know what? I, my farm was lousy with arrowheads and teepee rings and all kinds of archaeological evidence that people had lived there for millennia. Like, you know, as a kid, he's, he's collecting stuff, he's having a good time. Only after my talk did he realize that the people who possibly had built all of those things and left all those artifacts had been forced out of that territory to make way for his ancestors. That was kind of a revelation for him. So, uh, you know, he's been having to, to think about this. Uh, but I guess I've been thinking about a lot of these issues, and maybe I'll lay some of these on you. Okay? As I said, Johnny McDonald was, was the Minister of Indian Affairs at this time. He mentioned in Parliament that he was going to, he didn't use ethnic cleansing. Uh, we only, you know, uh, have uh, acquired that term since, uh, I don't know, the Bosnian War or something like that. Uh, but another thing he did, uh, we all know in this room that the Conservatives in the 1870s and 1880s were the tax and spend party, right? They're building the biggest mega project in Canadian history. Well, the Liberals were actually criticizing the Tories for spending so much money on food because the, actually the, uh, the contracts were adding up to potentially millions of dollars a year, maybe a couple million dollars a year in 1880s money. And what McDonald said was, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, in the interest of economy, we are keeping the people, the Indians on the verge of starvation to reduce the expense. So in Parliament, he's saying, like, we are keeping people as close to the edge as possible. And there's another one in Hansard I found where MacDonald is defending the ration policy, and he said, we're being rigid, even stingy, and we demand proof of starvation before food is distributed. Okay? Now, we know... Uh, from actually the very racist newspaper, the Saskatchewan Herald, the, like it was like a settler paper based in Battleford, very uh, 
oh, some very uh, incendiary language. But one of the things we know is that many, many people, probably a few hundred, died of what they called actual starvation. But as a population health researcher, or I'm kind of the historian mascot on a, you know this project with physicians and whatnot, uh, what was more important health-wise was that you have a large community, probably at 15,000 people, the reserve community, 15,000, 20,000 people, the reserve community of Saskatchewan and southern Alberta, who've been malnourished and malnourished on purpose because that, the, you know, the rations are so controlled. They're malnourished for so long and immune-suppressed immune so badly, tuberculosis breaks out at community-wide level. So what those physicians were seeing was the consequence of a five- or ten-year famine that was managed by the government. Um, and again, what does that say about Saskatchewan? And again, uh, I stopped in 1891 because... Well, because I'd spent 20 years on that project, and it was time to move on. But another reason was, was that because people had been so sick for so long with tuberculosis, in 1890, 1891, there was a global food pandemic, probably one of the first true pandemics that spread around the world. And there was a spike in mortality from people die- who had tuberculosis and died of the flu. So I stopped then, but that was very early on in the settlement, uh, in the kind of the settlement history of Saskatchewan. And what I've done since the book is I've been thinking about um, kind of the recruiting posters that the CPR would put on. And again, I would in my slideshow, I'd have a bunch of examples for you. But what they did was they portrayed the prairies as uh, a free farm for every man, homes for the millions. Like, uh, you know, and there'd be, you know, like a, a healthy person and like some huge uh, utopian farm. And one that got me was... Uh, Oh, the key to progress in the breadbasket of the world. Okay, so just, I'm not from Saskatchewan, like I'm, I'm an immigrant to Saskatchewan. But uh, my colleagues that I've been to grad school with or, or that grew up in Saskatchewan, that's part of their myth and part of their identity, that, that they've grown up in the breadbasket of the world. So I guess my challenge to them, possibly to you folks, is the breadbasket of the world has been built on a famine. Like, where does that leave us? And another, I don't know, one of those uncomfortable truths to, to think about is the prime minister knew and directed what he was doing. Like it was, I think it was very cruel, but no question it was effective. Within probably 18 months, there were literally a very few stragglers who weren't on reserves because they were starved, like they were getting no support. So how far are we away from McDonald's bicentennial? Uh, two months, actually it's November 1st. So how... How do we deal with it? And I guess we're, I'm in a room full of historians. I, I'm asking, like, how do we deal with this? And there's no question, uh, you know, like, I don't think this is sexist. Uh, he is the father of the country, right? Like, he, he was the, the person who made the deal. I was jogging up the street, and there's even, you know, a banner up there with him shaking hands with someone. But he's, I think, it, from my perspective, he's also the father of the dysfunctional country we've inherited, where 130, 40 years later, we still haven't reconciled in the West uh, our relationship with indigenous people. That's, uh, to me, that's probably the scariest thought that, uh, that I've come to. So uh, maybe I'll stop. I not only diverged from my speaking note, but I uh, didn't even look at it. So uh, maybe I'll give Mark a chance. And if I would uh, love to have a conversation about this because I've been thinking about it quite a bit. So thank you. Thank you. It's a little hard to 
to follow on that. Um, I do have notes, and I will and I will read from them. My book uh, on historical distance is both simple, I think, and hard to summarize. I describe it as ten and a half experiments on a central idea. And you might think that the central idea is, is what's complicated and the ten and a half experiments are easy. It's the other way around. The central idea, I think, is the simple part. Uh, as I tell my students, I have at best one idea, and that is this idea of distance. But what I want to do with distance is to get some more juice out of a very old-fashioned notion, uh, a notion that is usually associated with objectivity, but in this book is given a much wider uh, meaning and usefulness, I think. The ten and a half experiments, on the other hand, range over seven centuries of history and I think about eight or nine genres of representation, including narrative histories, philosophical histories, literary histories, history museums, popular histories, history painting, contrast narratives, and obituaries. Is the, Am I being heard okay or not? Higher. Yeah, it's higher. Okay. You 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 want my my talk to be a little higher? <laughs> okay. For reasons that I could talk about later, the chapters concern themselves with three distinct periods of history: the Florentine Renaissance. 18th century in 19, the 18th and 19th century in Britain, and the late 20th century in Europe uh, and, Amer- and America. To make things easier on myself and also easier on you, I've chosen to read two short pieces in the book, the two shortest pieces in the book, namely the preface and the epilogue. But before I begin, I want to give you the briefest possible indication of what I mean by historical distance and why it might matter to historians and to others. I should say I take this this brief description from a grant proposal that I've just finished writing, um, and all of you will know that, that grant proposals of all historical genres are probably the ones in which you are most required to be, to be succinct and in which you are most required to be unnaturally certain of... <laughs> of what you were saying. So keep that in mind. Um, Here is the grant proposal. The central central issue uh, investigated in my research is the problem of historical distance. Historians have generally agreed that the capacity to look back on the past from a self-conscious distance is fundamental to the modern discipline of history. Time, we say, gives gives us the scope to see events more clearly, both in their origins and impact. My work challenges this long-standing doctrine by enlarging the concept of distance and giving it much wider application. I argue that temporal distance is mediated by other forms of engagement that help to shape our relations with the historical past. Every representation of history, visual as well as verbal, and I put in visual because my work now is on history painting, visual as well as as verbal, incorporates elements of making, feeling, acting, and understanding. Or, to alter the terms, 
questions of formal structure and vocabulary, affective impact, moral or ideological interpolation, and underlying intelligibility. Combining in various ways to shape our experience of time, these four overlapping but distinguishable distances form, affect, summoning, and understanding provide an orientation to some of the central problems of historical representation. That is the, that's the heart of it. Um, the other, however many pages, um, are, are the experiments. Um, I'm going to, it's easier to read it outside of this, but I'm very proud of my... And I'm proud of it, and and I also find it very hard to to read from. If I could have retyped it myself right now, I could have at least expanded the expanded the 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 typeface. I want to begin with with the preface, which is which is short enough to read. And especially I want to start with a, a, a phrase which I took from Alfred North Whitehead, who says, In answering this challenge, I remind myself of the old advice that the doctrines which best replay, replay critical examination are those which for the longest period have remained unexamined. I think we just had a very nice example of something, the, the story of, 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 the, of the plains is a good example of something which has remained for a long time unexamined. Maybe you want to put Whitehead next to Sir John A. But it, it means something too for the question of distance. Is this okay now, Dominic? I'm... It is a salutary exercise for an intellectual historian to recollect how long it can take for an idea to germinate. I have explored questions, the questions that run through this book in a number of recent essays but its seeds go back to a teaching experience of a much earlier date. With a trepidation that proved to be well-founded, I had decided to devote a a class on historiography to some work of my own. The book was a micro-historical study of a little-known 15th-century Florentine Florentine merchant and memorialist named Marco Parenti, whose account of the failed revolt against the Medici I had discovered in an anonymous manuscript in the Biblioteca Nazionale in Florence. My students seemed to enjoy the mix of political intrigue and social detail incorporated in in this study, Uh, and especially the the social detail of the family correspondence that was my chief biographical resource. But alongside these narrative pleasures, there was also some nervousness amongst them about how far to trust this Rosencrantz and Guildenstern version of a period they associated with much grander figures. They had come expecting to hear about Machiavelli and Savonarola. Why all this attention to the ideas of an obscure memorialist with only a walk-on part in the politics of his day? One student in particular stayed in my memory because he was prepared to put his doubts quite bluntly as well as to extend them to other more notable representatives of the micro-historical genre. The lousy Cathar peasants, massacred cats, deluded millers, 
and returned husbands he had encountered in more than one of his undergraduate uh, history courses. My protest that microhistory had created a new way to represent ordinary lives and everyday experience was simply waved away. Aren't you actually telling us that your generation came too late to get to the really important stuff, the lives of people like Cosimo de' Medici and Lorenzo Magnifico? So really there was not much left over for you except this bunch of oddballs and small potatoes. Looking back, I am surprised to see how unprepared I was to articulate an approach that was then at the height of historiographical fashion. And I, I, sh- I would like to add the fact that it was then at the height of historiographical fashion and it's so far from the height of historiographical fashion now where big history has become the thing is, is really one of the nicest, um, one of the nicest um, proofs of my Uh, of my thesis about changing distance. Instead, I found myself improvising a new direction that came to seem more fruitful because it highlighted broader issues of of shared sensibilities and generational perspectives rather than of microhistory as such. Shifting to safer ground, I suggested a choice between two quite different accounts of the Battle of Stalingrad. The first book, presents the the crucial battle in the form that is traditional to military histories. That is, it provides a tactical narrative of the the conflict and analyzes the success of the Soviet command in outmaneuvering the invaders so that the German troops found themselves encircled and cut off from all supplies. Alternately, we might want to read a rather different sort of narrative one that deliberately ignores the larger strategic considerations and uses the letters written by the trapped German armies to to recreate the increasingly desperate condition of rank-and-file soldiers as they found themselves facing defeat and starvation in the depths of a Russian winter. This time there was no doubt where the students wanted to invest their sympathies. Most people, they said, would simply be less engaged by the tactics of generals than by the personal experiences of common soldiers. And the more directly expressed, the better. Why they held this preference was less clear, or how far they were prepared to defend it. But there was a strong sense in the room that that they were expressing the natural impulses of their generation. As students of history, they could, of course, appreciate that those who confronted these events in the immediate aftermath of the war would have had some rather different questions in mind. But a half century later, it had become possible to sympathize with the sufferings of ordinary soldiers, even if they were on the enemy side. I came away thinking that though the passage of time had had provided some of the necessary conditions, the the fundamental uh, change of perspective Involved, involved impulses that were more complex and wide-ranging and could be included in our customary idea of historical distance. Paradoxically, too, increased temporal distance had made possible a new, more democratized proximity. And that, for me, is an important point, that it was the fact that these soldiers, that these, these German soldiers were further away in time made them closer 
in in uh, in affective terms. The idea that historical sensibilities change over time was hardly a surprise. But this was perhaps the first occasion that I saw such changes as entailing a shift of distance, or that I began to consider the multiple distances that structure our engagement with the past. It became increasingly evident to me that if we think of history as fundamentally a literature of mediation, then re-examining the concept of historical distance might provide new ways to explore the complexities of historical representation. What else was mediating the sense of time? For both the historian and the reader, I've come to realize, distance is both historically given and historiographically constructed in ways that move far beyond the standard associations of distance with objectivity and the passage of time. There is no doubt, for example, that the interval that separates the present-day historian from from the momentous events of 1942-43 plays a part in making available uh, making available a variety of possible understandings of what occurred as the years pass and the longer history unfolds we can certainly expect to find new vantage points on this history and the result might well be a clearer picture of what happened nonetheless temporal distance is just the beginning since historical understanding is inconceivable outside of the affective and ideological engagements that give us that give the past so much of its meaning, or the formal structures that make representation possible. Consequently, an idea so fundamental to the historical vocabulary, the idea of historical distance, might need to be rethought in more open and imaginative terms. Belief in historical distance is hardly new. Time stills the loud noise of opinions, wrote Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1844 in a review of of Thomas Carlyle's Past and Present. It sinks the small, raises the great, so that the true emerges without effort and in perfect harmony to all eyes. But the truth of the present hour, except in particulars and single relations, is unattainable. The historian of today is yet three ages off, three generations before we'll get the proper history of today. Metaphors of distance permeate historical thought and provide the classic narrative of modernity's awakening to historical consciousness. Some point to the Renaissance, the Renaissance's longing for antiquity, others to the to the disruptions of the French Revolution. But in either case, history is figured as a response to a profound sense of distanciation, a word I've more or less had to accept or even make up, um, despite its ugliness, because I need to think of distances, not only things far away, but things which are close up. That is, nearness is a distance as well as farness. Scholarship, too, has had its cherished story of, of, of tradition and rupture, with distance marking the divide between modern scholarly methods and the literary amateurism of an earlier epoch. In this context, distance continues to be cited as the special virtue of a professional practice, the quality that, more than any other, distinguishes academic, academic vigor, rigor from popular memory 
or from everyday journalism or from from your thesis, I guess, as well. Indeed, indeed, even those who are quickest to, to reject that noble dream of objectivity stake their position on the alterity of other times. The past is a foreign country has become the historian's motto. When powerful ideas dwindle into shibboleths, it is easy to consider them spent. But there is wisdom in Whitehead's remark on the value of revisiting old doctrines. Whitehead's point, I think, is not just that, that re- entrenched ideas need, to be, need occasionally to be shaken, shaken up, a truism that could be applied to any number of historical concepts. Rather, his dictum suggests that the potential for broad-scale renewal that lies dormant suggests the potential for broad-scale renewal that lies dormant within the most enduring ideas, the ideas that have longest been with us and the ones to shake up. In this sense, disciplinary reformations resemble religious ones and take on additional force as the, as the force to the extent that they re-examine our most settled beliefs. Valuable insights may emerge from any number of places, but the deepest reforms trace a path back to the heart of a discipline and find new challenges in its oldest traditions. I'm going to leave the preface there um, and then read you the other short piece in the book, which is the epilogue. The epilogue is called Milai and Moral Luck, or it is 40 years since. Hugh Thompson was one of the heroes of the Vietnam War, though a troubled and damaged hero too. Here is an account given by the New York Times obituary under a headline that reads, Hugh Thompson, 62, who saved civilians at Milai, dies. On March 16th, 1968, this is the, the uh, New York Times, Chief Warrant Officer Thompson and his two crew members were flying on a reconnaissance mission over South, over South Vietnamese ter- village of My Lai when they spotted the bodies of men, women, and children strewn over the landscape. Mr. Thompson landed twice in an effort to determine what was happening, finally coming to the realization that a massacre was taking place. The second time, he touched down near a bunker in which a group of about 10 civilians were being menaced by American troops. Using hand signals, Mr. Thompson persuaded the Vietnamese to come out, come outside while ordering his gunners and his crew chief to shoot any American soldiers who opened fire on the civilians. None did. Mr. Thompson radioed for a helicopter gunship to evacuate the group, and then his his crew chief, Glenn Andreotta, uh, pulled a boy from a nearby irrigation ditch, and their helicopter flew him to safety. Mr. Thompson told what he had seen when he returned to his base. They said I was screaming quite loudly. I threatened never to fly again. I didn't want to be a part of that. It wasn't war. 
Thompson suffered the common fate of whistleblowers. According to the BBC News account, quote, he returned to headquarters angrily telling his commanders what he had seen. They ordered soldiers in the area to stop shooting. But Mr. Thompson was shunned for years by fellow soldiers, receiving death threats, and was once told by a congressman that he was the only American who should be, dis- who should be punished over Me Lai. Later, Lieutenant Calley, William Calley, commander of one of the platoons that had been involved, was court-martialed and sentenced to life in prison. But his sentence was commuted to, by President Nixon to three years of house arrest. Thompson himself was largely forgotten, and his private life after Milai was troubled by alcohol and several failed marriages. He even changed his name, calling himself Buck, to avoid identification with the memory of Milai. Eventually, a campaign was mounted on his behalf, and after 30 years, he was decorated. The Guardian reported, the U.S. Army has had initially wanted his soldier's medal, the, medal, the, the military's highest medal award for uh, bravery in peacetime, to be presented quietly, prefer, preferring to keep what happened at Milai in the background. But Thompson resisted. He wanted a ceremony at the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, and the bravery of his fellow crew members recognized as well. In March 1998, he finally got his wish. What had given Thompson such courage and clarity of mind? The obituaries have relatively little to say about his motives, preferring to dwell on his continued trials and eventual vindication, rather than to, rather than to speculate on the inner resources that allowed one ordinary man to make so costly a stand. The Guardian, however, hints at, at a number of possible avenues. Thompson was born in Atlanta, Georgia, to strict Episcopalian present, sorry, strict Episcopalian parents, and moved to North to, to Stone Mountain, uh, where he was when he was three years old. His father served with the U.S. Army and Navy during the Second World War, and spent 30 years with the Naval Reserve. His paternal grandfather was a full-blooded Cherokee, forced off his land in North Carolina in 1850 and resettled in Georgia. Thompson joined the U.S. Navy in 1960 and spent three years in a Seabees construction unit. After a brief return to civilian life in 1964, he enlisted in the Army as it was becoming engaged in Vietnam. A religious upbringing, his father's military career, and his own commitment to the military life perhaps a residual identification with his Native American ancestry. With its own history of forced removals and genocidal violence against civilians, it would be entirely plausible if if any or all of these played a a part in Thompson's response that day, enabling a a readiness to act that seems quite different from the slower awakening and retrospective regret that often troubles our moral lives. There is also a further question to consider in relation to Thompson's dissident bravery, a circumstance that, combining with other influences already mentioned, may have contributed something important to his strength of mind that day. 
As a reconnaissance pilot, Thompson had a different job to do in Milai than did the infantrymen of Charlie Company. And he and his, fr- and his crew observed events from a different physical and intellectual vantage. Their war was no less dangerous. Thompson himself was shot down five times, and one of his crew was killed only a few weeks later. But surely they, they, they had had a different sort of war. Indeed, as the Times obituary reported, sorry, as the Times obituary made clear, seeing was very much at issue. And in the initial stages, Thompson had trouble making sense of the picture that he saw below. It was only by taking off and landing a second time that he became convinced that the dozens of bodies that, that, that littered the village formed a pattern that belonged to no concept of warfare he could accept. Whether the revulsion was owing to his military training, religious upbringing, Cherokee ancestry, or some other feature of simple humanity, we know not how to name. Considering as a kind, considered as a kind of parable, the story I have assembled from the obituaries speaks for a variety of ways in which forms of distance may operate to shape our moral capacities. In his most critical moment, Thompson was not merely a pilot flying above the carnage. He was also a reconnaissance officer with both military and human duties to perform. His training, as well as his physical location, gave him possibilities for judgment that set him apart from the men on the ground. By the same token, his situation was very different from that of the military brass and congressmen whom he angered by by caring more about the atrocity he had witnessed than for the reputation of the American forces. On this account, the view from the hovering aircraft confronted the pilot with a disturbing cognitive challenge, but one that could only be resolved in moral action by coming right down to the ground level. The result was a life-changing decision that left Thompson both a hero and a victim. Presented in isolation, Thompson's life easily assumes the form of what Nietzsche calls monumental history, the kind of history that is built on the conviction that the past must must be described as something worthy of imitation. In the context of Vietnam, such an approach has deep attractions, since it retrieves a moment of hopefulness in one of the worst episodes in a shameful war. And yet, as Nietzsche rightly insists, for all its comforts, the monumental approach gives us only only a selective understanding of history. What then had been left out of the story? No historian will ever walk a mile in the shoes of those who, those who murdered the civilians of Milai. But neither can we claim for ourselves the physical and moral elevation of Thompson's helicopter without considering the very different vantage of those who fought on the ground against soldiers who seemed indistinguishable from ordinary peasants. What were the realities for them? Even the obituaries, focused as they are on on Thompson's courage and conscientiousness, give indications of another much less edifying but equally human narrative. On March 16, 1968, The Guardian reported, 
Thompson was flying his H-23 scout helicopter with its three-man crew over a part of Guangzhou province known as Pinkville, supporting a three-company search-and-destroy assault on several villages, which faulty intelligence had indicated were heavily defended by by Viet Cong troops. Charlie Company was bent on revenge. Days earlier, several of its members had been killed by Viet Cong mines and booby traps. Without a shot being fired against them, Cali's men began slaughtering, uh, began slaughtering anyone they could find. The faulty intelligence may have been the consequence of, mis- of a mistake made at, at some remove from the battlegrounds, but the, but the, the deadly booby traps of Quang Jai were experienced at all too close a range, and the men of Charlie Company responded with dreadful consequences for both the perpetrators and their victims. It is not easy to join, to join Hugh Thompson's experience with Charlie Companies under a unified view of American warfare. The problem goes beyond balancing the moral bravery of the one and the murderous violence of the other. To understand their intersecting fortunes, we may need the help of another, of another relational concept with some affinity to distance. I have in mind Bernard Williams' oxymoronic idea of moral luck. The sense that even moral life, traditionally regarded as a realm of autonomy, is subject to the accidents of situation. Certainly it takes nothing away from the admiration that is owing to Thompson and his crew to say that March 16, 1968 was a good day to be airborne. And what of the vantage of the historian whose acts of reconnaissance can no longer be thought of as straightforward search for detachment? History's first task may be to fashion a responsible narrative of events, but its larger ambitions encompassed complexities that could not have been visible to those who were caught up in the fray. How to grapple with this sort of challenge is impossible to to prescribe in the abstract. But once we are able to set aside the notion of a clear line from temporal recession to objective distance, so-called, it becomes easier to honor the many-sided character of historical engagement. Only then will we be able to make the most use of Zimmel's perception of the, of the unity of nearness and remoteness in involving, involved in every human relation. That's it quote from earlier. Thank you. You've been listening to a recording of Historical Research on Canada and Beyond, a discussion with James Dashik and Mark Phillips. The event was held on Saturday, November 1st, 2014 at City Hall in Ottawa. The event was hosted by the Canadian Historical Association. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca.